Let's pray. Father, we do thank you once more, as we just sang, that your grace has planned it all. And not only that, your grace has obtained it all, uh, so that ours is but to believe. And so, Father, as we come to your word this morning, would you fill your saints uh, with confidence in your word and in their position in Christ? And also, Lord, would you pierce the hearts of those who might be among us who have hardened themselves to your word? And Lord, we pray that you would accomplish your good purposes here among us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. And last week, we begin studying the section that starts in verse 20 and runs all the way down to verse 35. And the theme of that section, remember, is responses to Jesus Christ. Responses to Jesus Christ. This passage teaches us is that whenever anyone encounters Jesus, they must respond. Whenever someone encounters Jesus, either when they encountered Him, like the scribes and Pharisees and crowds in the first century, or when they encounter Him through His Word, whenever someone encounters Jesus, a response will happen. It's inevitable. And the options, according to this text, are really twofold. You will either respond in faith to Him, and you'll bow to Him as Lord and joyfully follow Him in obedience, or you'll respond to Him in some form of unbelief. Either it would be a a civilized, sort of friendly unbelief, like the unbelief we looked at last week with Jesus' brothers, where they conclude in unbelief, that Jesus was out of his mind. That's one option of unbelief. The other form of unbelief is more hostile. And it looks at Jesus through his life and ministry, and it responds to him with a hardened, hostile unbelief. In the face of mountains of evidence, it looks at Jesus and says, no thanks, and turns away. And that's the form of unbelief we're going to look at this morning. It doesn't just say, I don't believe. It doesn't just say, he might be a little crazy. It says explicitly and willfully, this man is and was a liar and a deceiver. And even further, it says, he must have been possessed by the devil. It's a a sort of hard-hearted, hostile form of unbelief that dismisses Jesus as a liar and a fraud. And I would love to tell you this morning that that form of unbelief died with the Pharisees and the scribes. But it didn't. And it is alive and well, tragically so, in the 21st century. And it's actually alive and well to the extent that it's likely under this roof this morning. There is a hard-heartedness that is present. A hard-hearted unbelief that is even present often in a church building. And the church gathers. And the Lord has a way of hammering that heart... And breaking it. And my hope this morning is that your heart, if that's you, will receive a death blow this morning. And that the text that we're going to look at will come to you as a hammer to a rock. And shatter you. And humble you. And bring you to repentance. Now, others of you are here. And you are trusting in the Lord Jesus. And you're singing joyfully, you love Him, you know Him, you want to live more earnestly for Him. And my hope for you is that you will look at this form of unbelief and you will thank God. You will thank God that He gave you faith to believe. That's my hope this morning. That's that's what I want, 
with the Lord's help to accomplish. So if you will stand with me, we're going to read Mark chapter 3, verse 20, all the way down to verse 35. And Jesus came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men, And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. You may be seated. Our focus this morning is on verse 22 all the way down to verse 30. And this, of course, is one of the most sobering, sobering sections in the entire Bible. And what we see here, really, in these verses is the response of the scribes to the life and ministry of Jesus. They had to respond, and so do we. And their response was not one of faith, but one of hard-hearted unbelief. And look at verse 22. It says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem... We're saying, and this is their accusation, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Now you'll remember the scribes from chapter 2 of Mark in our study. That's where we first meet them in the Gospel of Mark. And in that account where the four brothers, or the four friends rather, brought their pal who was a paralytic And they couldn't get to Jesus, and so they dug a hole in the roof and let him down so that Jesus could see this man. And Jesus, you'll remember, healed the man. And not only that, Jesus did something shocking. It was shocking enough for them to dig a hole in the roof. It was shocking enough for Jesus to heal the man so he could walk. But Jesus then unilaterally declared this man's sins to be forgiven. You remember that? Now, the scribes were there at this, on this occasion. The scribes were there, and they objected to what Jesus did and said. They were the experts in the Old Testament. They were the PhDs of the day, and they understood that only one being had the authority and the power to unilaterally declare sins to be forgiven. And that one being is and was then, and is now, God. And so, in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, because no man can declare another man's sins to be forgiven. God alone can do that. They declared that Jesus had committed a blasphemous act, that his speech was defamation, that it was profane, and it was an offense against the true and living God. Because only God could forgive sins. What they missed, of course, was that God was actually in flesh right in front of them. And they didn't make that connection. They didn't see that Jesus was actually God. And the very fact that he could raise this man and give him power to walk authenticated the reality that he was God in flesh. They missed that. And now we come to chapter 3 and verse 22. And we encounter a new set of scribes. I notice that the text says this is a distinct group of scribes because they were the ones who had come down from where? Jerusalem. 
This is probably a new wave of scribes that, come, that had come down from Jerusalem. Now, Galilee is north of Jerusalem. So they came down because geographically Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. And Galilee is about 700 feet. Capernaum is about 700 feet uh, below or above sea level, rather. And they came down from Jerusalem to Capernaum because geographically... That's true, but also it's true because of its religious significance. Jerusalem was the holy city of God. It was the place where the temple was located. And the temple represented what? God's presence with His people. And so, because it was the holy city, because it was where God was, uh, had set His representation of dwelling with His people... It was also the place where Jewish orthodoxy thrived. And that's significant because these scribes come down from the holy city to investigate Jesus in Capernaum. And since they come from Jerusalem, it suggests that these scribes were men of some significance. They were probably an official delegation from the holy city where the citadel of Jewish orthodoxy resided, and they were coming down to Galilee to investigate this man, Jesus of Nazareth. What we don't get in the Gospel of Mark, but we know from Matthew's account of this same incident, is that in God's providence, just as these official delegates from the Holy City were arriving at the house where Jesus was doing ministry, there was a man who was brought to Jesus. And this man was demon-possessed. He was also blind, and he was mute. He couldn't speak. And the timing is just uncanny. Jesus stands in front of the crowd. Remember, they're so full in his house, they're spilling out into the, the road... They're everywhere, so full that they can't even eat. And the scribes walk up. And Jesus, in front of them and this great crowd, casts out the demon from this poor man who was blind and mute, restores his sight and cleanses him and restores him. In Matthew 12, 22, it says this, The mute man, after Jesus did this, the mute man spoke and saw. And the crowds were amazed. And in light of such a miracle, the crowds actually were forced to make some response to who Jesus was. And so in verse 23 of Mark, or Matthew chapter 12, they started to say this, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? The scribes, the official delegates appear. Jesus stands up, casts out the demon, performs a miracle to heal the man. The crowds are brought face to face with this man, Jesus Christ. They must respond. The scribes are brought face to face. They must respond. And the crowd starts asking the question in front of the delegates. This man can't be the Messiah, can he? The son of David. And really, it's interesting here because their question in Matthew 12, 23 suggests that they're, they're sort of at a loss for words. The only reasonable explanation to what they have just seen is that Jesus must be the son of David, the promised Messiah. However, in the way they asked the question, there's evidence that they weren't convinced. They were trying to figure it out. Because in Greek, there are three ways to ask a question. One of those ways is to ask the question in such a way that expects, anticipates a negative answer. And that's what the crowds do here. This man cannot be the son of David, can he? It just can't be right. He can't really be him. But he's doing all this wonderful stuff. He's declaring that he is. What's going on here? They're stupefied. And there's dissonance between what they're hearing from the religious leaders 
and for what their own eyes are seeing and they're being convinced of. And as the scribal delegation arrives and sees this unfolding, they sort of swoop in uh, to correct the bad, faulty thinking of the crowd. They don't want the crowd to think Jesus really is the Savior. And so they come in in verse 22, they give their official diagnosis. He is possessed by Beelzebul. In other words, don't believe this man. Here we are. We're here as the official representatives of Jewish orthodoxy. You can trust us. Don't believe this man. He is possessed by Beelzebul. He's under the power of Satan. And that's what they mean. All right, now when these men speak, there's some weight to it. And so the crowd, they're already trying to figure it out, and, and they're sort of going to be pulled naturally over to what their religious leaders are saying. And they say, Jesus is under the power of the devil. He is possessed by Beelzebul. Originally, it's an interesting word, Beelzebul, originally was the name of a Canaanite god, Baal. And in English, we say Baal, the god Baal, which means Lord, false god, of course. And so Beel, or Baal, Zebul, meant something like the Lord of the exalted place. Beelzebul meant something like the Lord of the exalted place. And the Israelites, apparently to mock the Canaanite false god, they changed the last letter of Beelzebul to Beelzebub, which meant Lord of the Flies. At some point, the name became connected to Satan. So to say Beelzebul or Beelzebub was just to say Satan. So the crowd is there. The scribes swoop in and they say, no, 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 don't be confused. This man is not doing what he's doing uh, for God. He is actually a liar and a deceiver. He is operating under the power of the devil and you were almost sucked in. But notice, I mean, it's clear from the text. They don't deny that Jesus is doing something remarkable. And they're not denying that he's doing something that is inexplicable. There's no denying that. Even the Pharisees, like Nicodemus in John 3, you remember, Nicodemus says, We know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. There's no way to explain what you're doing unless God is at work or some other power or spirit is here. The signs and the miracles were explicit and undeniable. Jesus wasn't going around and extending one person's leg three inches. Right? If you've seen that happen in charismatic movement. It, it, Jesus wasn't doing this. Jesus was doing legitimate, verifiable, immediate miracles. And everyone around could see it, and it was crystal clear that this man was doing what he did by some greater power. And what the scribes come in to do is not to deny the reality of the miracle, but they impugn the source it's important if we're going to understand what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is and what Jesus is addressing here. They're impugning the source, the power behind Jesus' actions. And so verse 22, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. That's their accusation. All right, that's it. And Jesus doesn't let it lie. He actually takes it head on. Verse 23 to 26, Jesus responds. And he essentially dismantles their argument. Verse 20, which is not actually that complicated. You'll see as we get on the other side of this. That's pretty flimsy argumentation. Verse 23, and he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. Now, it's just amazing to me. Here they are, the official delegates. They're coming down to investigate Jesus. And the way that Mark portrays it is, Jesus, here's what they say. And Jesus says, come over here. And they just, you know, they come and do exactly what he bids them do. And he, he calls them to himself and he begins speaking to them in parables. This is essentially here, this is just an illustration. Sometimes parables, as we'll see in the next chapter, are given to conceal a matter. It's God's glory to conceal a matter. 
And so sometimes parables are given to conceal truth, which is shocking. We'll look at that in chapter 4. But sometimes they're given to illuminate and help someone understand. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He gives an illustration really to show how ridiculous their accusation is. He calls them over and he asks one simple question. How can Satan cast out Satan? Actually, the question is enough to demonstrate how absurd their indictment is. It doesn't even make sense what you're saying. And sometimes people who are highly educated, they speak in ways that just don't make any sense sometimes. And here they say, you know, they make an accusation that just doesn't make sense. And so Jesus says, how, how can that even happen? I'm not impressed with your rhetoric. How, how is that even possible? How does what you're, what you're saying even make sense? And so he gives them an illustration to sort of show them their own folly. And hopefully for everyone around to hear how absurd their accusation is. Verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Notice the parallel there. Essentially the same sentence repeated, verse 24 and verse 25, except for the words kingdom and house. They're actually parallel concepts um, in the ancient Near East. To talk about kingdom and a house were essentially to speak of a dynasty or some sort of throne or power. We see that in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, where God told David... You can listen to this. He said this, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. A throne, a kingdom, and a house. This is all speaking of a dynasty, of a power, of a dominion. And so Jesus says, Your house and your kingdom, or God says rather, Your house, your kingdom will remain Forever. And here in Mark 3, verse 24 and 25, Jesus is referring to the dominion of Satan. Which is why in verse 26 he says, If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. We're talking about the kingdom, the dominion, the reign of Satan. In other words, if he's at civil war... This is not good for the devil. And if he's going out and fighting against himself, this doesn't bode well for Satan. In other words, he says, if Satan is going around, if Satan has empowered me to go around and cast out demons that he has placed where they are strategically, if he is empowering me to do that, then this is the end of Satan's kingdom. In fact, verse 26 Satan is finished. It's over. The war has ceased. As a special grammatical form, verse 26, that Satan is finished. It's a special grammatical form that points to the consummation of his defeat. It's not that he's being defeated, but that he has already been defeated, is the idea. It's a consummation. If what you're saying is true then the end of Satan's dominion has now arrived. And the battle's over. But, if that's true, then why are these demons so actively oppressing people? If Satan is finished, then why is he so active right now? And if what you're saying is true, then Satan is done. His kingdom is over. Yet the demons are still at work oppressing people, and I am busy casting out these demons and working against his kingdom. So busy, actually, that I don't even have time to eat. So the very fact that there were still demons at work was proof that the scribe's argument was absurd. Satan was clearly not defeated. In fact, he was very much at work. And now these scribes, you remember, were very smart men. They were the masters of the Old Testament. They knew Jewish tradition, Jewish law better than anyone alive at that point. And they knew better. They knew better 
than to offer such a flimsy argument against Jesus. But what is happening here is that these scribes were so hard-hearted. They were so bent on denouncing Jesus that they were grasping for the lowest hanging fruit of an argument just to have it on their hands and throw it out there. And they're looking directly at the evidence in front of them. They know that what they're seeing is extraordinary. They know that. They know that no one has ever done the things that they are seeing before their very eyes. No one has ever spoke like Jesus, taught like Jesus, preached like Jesus, performed miracles like Jesus. And they're looking at this reality in the full light of day. And the crowds are being pulled over to Jesus, and they hate that. They are jealous. They hate that the crowds would be won over to this man, Jesus. And they're determined to undermine Jesus and His work, and so they reach for the first argument they can find to malign the name and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so they accuse Jesus of doing what He's doing by the power of the devil. And it makes absolutely no sense. And so basically, Jesus is saying, if you are right, scribes, if what you're saying is true, then Satan's already defeated, and and he's going to, even if he's not defeated, he's about to be defeated, he's working against himself, and there's way more things that you should be concerned about than me and my work that I'm doing for the devil. That's the idea. Why are you worried about me? Why are official delegations being sent to investigate me if I'm doing what I'm doing by the power of the devil? Because his kingdom is essentially over. And here's the point. The hardened human heart will lay hold of the flimsiest arguments and believe anything before it bows its proud heart to Jesus. The hardened heart will lay hold of the flimsiest arguments and believe anything before it bows the knee to Christ. I remember a few years ago, I was on an airplane coming back from Los Angeles. I'd been uh, at, in a seminary for a month uh, out there for a course. And I was coming home, and I sat down exhausted, mentally exhausted, and I sat down on the flight knowing that I needed to share the gospel with the person next to me quickly so I could go to sleep. That's just my confession. Uh, and I sat down on my flight, and I thought, maybe I'm the only person in this row. That would be great. But in God's providence, a man came uh, and sat right next to me, and we had a couple of hours of conversation. And, and this man was a special guy. He had a PhD from either Harvard or Yale, I don't remember. But he was a college professor. And we started talking, and I was you know, working my way around to getting to the gospel with him. And so I asked him what his thoughts were on the meaning and significance of life. Which was a good question. And he began to tell me, uh, that he actually grew up in church, raised in a, uh, what he thought to be a good church, he said, uh, biblical principles, all these things in his life, but that his views had morphed a bit since he had uh, been in the academy. He still believed, he said, that throughout history there was an invisible hand at work to shape humanity into who we are, and he believed that that invisible hand was still at work to help us, you know, advancing technologies and even build the pyramids and all sorts of things. And I thought, okay, this guy, he's a deist, right? He's an academic. He's just a deist. He believes invisible hands at work. It's not personal. I know where to go from here. And, And then he said something that shocked me. He said, you know, that's the way I grew up. But now I'm almost certain that that invisible hand has been our extraterrestrial neighbors this whole time. And and I couldn't believe it. And I just smiled and I said, uh, do you mean aliens? (laughs) And he said, oh yeah, yeah, aliens, extraterrestrials. He, He used some other word. I don't remember the word he used. He said, they're the only ones in our galaxy or solar system who have a vested interest in the earth's advance and progress. I was so shocked. And I said, 
there's no way you actually believe that. <laughs> and he said, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I really believe that. It's, it's a growing theory in the academic world, and it's actually gaining a lot of traction. My point in telling you that story is, I mean, here's a PhD from one of the most you know, prestigious institutions, Harvard, Yale, some Ivory League school, and he believes that the invisible hand that has been directing us throughout history was the hand of our alien neighbors. In dead earnestness, he believed that. The hardened human heart will believe anything, anything, in order to avoid bowing the knee to Jesus. The flimsiest arguments to them can become the most solid ground upon which to stand. And they'll build their whole academic future and career and life on the argument that aliens are to be credited for our advance as a nation. It's not because their most noble ambition is to know what's true. They don't believe that because of that ambition. Romans 1 tells us that people believe such crazy things because they actually hate God and they're running from Him. That men believe they know the truth, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And as they're suppressing the truth, they know there's got to be an explanation for the way things are. And so they will reach for the lowest hanging fruit. And they'll claim and stake their life and existence on that. And really, the whole agenda is to escape the reality of a holy and sovereign God to whom every one of us must give an account. And really, that's exactly what these scribes were doing. They didn't say that Jesus was an alien, but they did say that he was operating under the power of the devil, which is equally crazy and foolish. And Jesus easily debunks their logic. But then in verse 27, Jesus gives them an explanation for what's actually happening. Certainly, demons are being casted out. Work is happening But what is going on here? Jesus says, verse 27, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. This is a clarification, as I said, of what is really going on as Jesus is casting out demons. And it's an illustration. We don't want to take it too far. You don't want to build your whole eschatology or theological position on this one Verse, it's merely a parable. It's an illustration to help us understand what he's actually doing and was doing as he was casting out demons. And the idea here, you can see it, it's pretty straightforward, is something like a home invasion. There's a strong man who has a house. He has goods in his house, furniture, lamps, all sorts of books, things that he possesses. And if someone is going to break into this strong man's house, And take his books, his most valued possessions. Um, (laughs) If someone is going to break into the strong man's house, he must necessarily be stronger than the owner of the house. Especially if he's going to bind him. And here, the homeowner represents Satan. Satan is the strong man, and the goods or the property of Satan, the things in his house, are those who are, one, oppressed by him, like the demon-possessed man, and two, the demons that belong to Satan, right? They're part of his house and kingdom. They're part of his dominion. Of course, God is above all of that, and even the devil is God's devil. God is in charge. But in this illustration, Satan is the strong man And Jesus is the stronger man. Clearly, Satan's power over the people is extraordinary, and his dominion in the world is vast. And that's true. But only someone stronger than Satan could come into his house and bind him and free those who Satan had claimed to be his own. So taking this illustration... 
what was really happening as Jesus was casting out demons and healing the sick was that Jesus was actively laying siege to Satan's dominion. The Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus was laying siege to Satan's kingdom, taking back those who were under his power and judging his demons. To put it another way, with every exorcism Jesus carried out, the kingdom of God was breaking in on the kingdom of Satan. So we see in Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's the idea. The kingdom of light is present and it's pushing back the kingdom of darkness. With every exorcism, Jesus was demonstrating his absolute rule and authority over Satan and over all that Satan had claimed to be his own. Satan, of course, is a strong man, but Jesus is stronger. And really, there's no contest. There's no contest here. Satan is not above Jesus, as the scribes were saying, and therefore empowering Jesus to do the work. Satan is actually far below Jesus, under Jesus' feet, if you will. And every time Jesus exercises a demon, that power and authority was demonstrated. And we know, moving forward, fast forward to Ephesians 2, 1-10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Um, you were walking around. You were alienated from Him, but you were walking around. And you were under the power of the prince of the air. That's Satan. right? The prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. Every time a soul is saved, even now, it's the kingdom of light pushing back infiltrating the kingdom of Satan and redeeming one who had formerly been oppressed by the devil. And in this text, in this setting, Jesus was pushing back Satan's kingdom and advancing the kingdom of the Messiah. The kingdom of God, rather. And Jesus did this, and the scribes knew it, and the problem was that they had become so hardened to Jesus that they deliberately turned from him. And they formulated an argument that had no weight. And they believed it because, get this, they believed it because that's what they wanted to be true. And in the face, in the face of their hard-heartedness, Jesus gives them a very sober warning in verses 28. To 30. I mean, a sober, sober warning. He says, Truly, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, verse 30, he has an unclean spirit. This is one of the most troubling passages in all of Scripture. And it's only one of two places in the New Testament where we're told that there is a type of sin. There is a type of sin that is utterly unforgivable. We don't typically think in the category of unforgivable sin because the weight of verse 28 is usually what we're singing about. Verse 28, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. We love that. And we believe that. And that's true. And we should build, we have really built all of our theology and all our hope on that promise that all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. In fact, the reason that verse 29 is so sobering is because verse 28 is so comprehensive. God, we know, we believe, we trust, we see it everywhere in Scripture that God has ordered His economy in such a way that any sin can be fully forgiven. David was forgiven of his adultery, his deceit, and his murder. Peter was forgiven of his cowardice 
and for denying Jesus in order to save his own life. The Apostle Paul was forgiven of slaughtering the Lord's precious church. The prodigal son in in Jesus' parable was forgiven of his riotous living. And friends, I tell you, you can be forgiven too. Uh, We would testify. We have all been forgiven as repentant sinners. We have all been forgiven of an enormous debt. And the truth of Scripture is that God is a God who abundantly pardons the worst sinners. We believe that. Um, That's what we believe. That's the promise of Scripture. But that forgiveness is, is founded upon this one condition, that you turn from sin and trust in Christ in humble faith. And all those who turn to Jesus receive that pardon. Yet, according to verse 29, there is a type of sin that is beyond the pale of God's forgiveness. It's a sin that is so heinous that it can never be blotted out and will be punished for all eternity. Now, to be clear, all sin merits an eternal punishment. This is why the Bible teaches that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. Meaning that hell is a place where unrepentant sinners receive the punishment for their sin throughout all eternity. It's eternal, they're aware of it, and it's a heavy weight for eternity. The punishment is and must be eternal for our sin because the crime that we have committed is against an eternally holy God. Crimes even today are punished based upon the stature of the person against whom you've sinned. Right, if you, if you uh, rob me, that's a crime. But if you steal from the President of the United States, that's a felony. It would be a higher punishment. The same way, sin against God is eternal. And the crime of our sin is that we have turned from a holy God and we're resolved to live our own way. And that sin is enough to damn you for eternity. The only way to be forgiven of that sin and pardoned of that consequence and repercussion is that you look to Jesus and you believe that on the cross, Jesus took your eternal punishment for your sin. He took that upon Himself and drank the cup of God's wrath in full for you. God has given one way to be pardoned of sin. And it's Jesus Christ. That is the only way. Of course, that's the point of verse 28. All sins will be forgiven. Every man, woman, or child who confesses, repents, trusts in Jesus will be forgiven. But these men, these scribes in our passage, they looked at God's appointed way of salvation. They looked at it, and they spat on it. They said, in effect, no thanks, God. We'll do this our own way. And actually, it's even worse than that. Because they didn't just deny Jesus and say, we'll do it our own way. They actually slandered him to the, in effort rather, to lead the crowds away from Jesus. Remember, they're on the fence, it seems. And they're trying to come in and pull not only themselves to hell, but also the crowds. And in verse 29, Jesus calls their sin the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And He says it's unpardonable. Now the question is, why does He call it the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Not, why not the blasphemy against Jesus, the Son. Well, let me show you that real quick. So in His incarnation, Jesus set aside the independent use of His power. 
When God the Son became man, He veiled His deity. We sing about it at Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hell, the incarnate deity. Jesus veiled His divine perfections when He became man. He added to Himself humanity. He didn't stop being God, and He couldn't. You can't stop being God. Any more than Lincoln can stop being human. Right? You can't stop that. Right? This is your nature. This is who you are. Jesus didn't stop being God. He put on humanity. He t- added to His divinity a human nature. He veiled, though, His deity. And He set aside the independent use of His divine perfections. And that's what we see in Mark 1, really, if you flip back to Mark 1, at Jesus' baptism, you remember that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus just as the, pro- the prophet Isaiah predicted. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. And then verse 20, or verse 12, rather, of chapter 1, impelled Him to go out into the wilderness. The Spirit of God descended upon the divine Son to empower Him for the work the Father had given Him to do. So, Jesus carried out all of His earthly ministry by the operative power of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. It's, it's really it's amazing. It's, and, and what's amazing about it is the same Spirit that was operative in Jesus is the same Spirit that is indwelling every believer. Uh, it's amazing. I think I've already said that twice. It's worth saying four times. It's amazing. It's amazing. So all the miracles, all the wonders, all the signs that Jesus did, all of these were carried out through the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of it was the Holy Spirit's way of attesting to Jesus as the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. All of it. All of it carried out by the Holy Spirit, pointing and saying, look, this is the Son, the Anointed One. He is the Savior of the world. Believe Him. And what the scribes did in this moment was that they looked at the perfect Son of God who was being attested to by signs and wonders carried out through the Holy Spirit. And they credited the source of Jesus' powerful life and ministry to Satan. They were in effect calling the Holy Spirit the devil. That's why Jesus calls it blasphemy. To blaspheme is to speak against or to defame. There is no greater blasphemy than to call the Holy Spirit the devil. And that's exactly what the scribes did. As one writer put it, this was the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is this. It is a malicious, willful rejection and slander against the Holy Spirit's work attesting to Jesus Christ and attributing His work to Satan. It's a malicious and willful rejection and slander against the Holy Spirit's work of attesting to Christ and attributing His work to Satan. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So, so to be clear, this was not an isolated thought or comment from the scribes. It, it didn't just sort of accidentally come out. You don't accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That doesn't happen. This was a conscious, willful, settled pattern of thought and conviction that flowed out of a heart that was totally hardened against God. And Mark captures the nature of this sin in verse 30 when he says, he he said this was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the power of Satan. I don't know how to get any clearer than that. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to attribute the work of God's Spirit to the power of 
Satan. That is what it means to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and it is an unpardonable sin. So the vital question for us is, can we commit this sin? Can someone today look at the evidence of Jesus' activity through his word and in an act of hardened unbelief declare his work to be satanic? Can that happen today? I think so. I've wrestled with this all week. Um, But I, I think so. I think we can. And of course, there is a difference, and and by that, I I don't think a believer can do this. I should preface that. But I think it can happen today. I think it's possible to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But of course, there's a difference between where you and I sit today and where the scribes and those present in the first century sat. Remember, these men were uniquely present to see the miraculous and authenticating realities of Jesus Christ in person. And on top of that, they were not ordinary men. They were the leaders of Israel. They were the experts in the law. They were the teachers of Israel. And we know that teachers, those who teach, are judged with a greater strictness. These men were the experts in the law. They should have known better. Yet they looked at the brightest light imaginable, the witness of the Holy Spirit through the miraculous ministry of Jesus. They looked at that light and they called it darkness. They said it was satanic. So in one sense, no one alive today can exactly do that because none of us are in that exact situation. Which is why some scholars have said that the sin against the Holy Spirit is so unique that it could only be committed by the people alive during the earthly ministry of Jesus. And I I really sympathize with that view because you are not a scribe. You have not seen with your physical eyes the ministry of Jesus and you're not there to spit on him and reject his work. But I think for me, the text is specific enough for me that I think it's simply looking at Jesus and crediting the power of his ministry to the power of the devil. But it's still, at the end of the day, it's a very specific sin. So unless you have looked at Jesus' work and said, yep, that was demonic, then you have not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let me set you at ease. It's very specific. It's not an undefinable feeling that maybe I have blasphemed the Holy Spirit sometime in my past, and now God will not forgive me. No, this is a sin that is willfully committed from a hard heart that looks at the life and ministry of Jesus and declares it to be of the devil. Now, if you do that, if you look at Jesus' ministry from his word and you declare it to be satanic, you are cut from the same cloth as the scribe. And you have committed the same sin. But there is a corollary to this sin in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 2. And the corollary to that sin is called apostasy. Apostasy. So turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I want to just look at this real quick with you. Hebrews chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Verse 4. So essentially, let me give you a little synopsis. Paul is saying, let's press on. Let's grow. You should be mature already. You need to get there. Don't give up. Keep pushing on. Verse 4. 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And, And let me just say something here. The point here is that He's describing people who have been around the church. They've been in the church. They've been around the church. 
to such an extent that they could be said to have tasted and seen and had uh, witnessed the Holy Spirit's work. It's amazing, the parallel there. They have witnessed, verse 4, they have become partakers even of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that means they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but they participated in the work the Spirit of God was doing in the church. 1 John 2.9 says they went out from us because they were not of us. So they were hangers-on, if you will. They were in there, but they were not part of the true team. They were not converted. These are people who are part of the church. They'd seen the power of the gospel transform lives. They'd sit underneath the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. But much like the scribes, they looked at the evidence around them, the evidence they heard week in and week out, and the evidence of transformed lives like we saw in the baptismal service this morning, they looked at that, and rather than bowing in response to Jesus and living under His Lordship, they took the evidence, they look at the evidence rather, and they turned deliberately from it. Look at verse 6. All of those people, this is the sort of way they were, and then verse 6, and then have fallen away. And then have fallen away. It's unfortunate, I think, uh, that this word, fallen away, is translated as a passive. We often hear fallen away, and it makes us think of, you know, you're carrying your groceries up to your house, and you fall and you trip. It's an accident. You do something accidentally. And that, that seems, when we hear fallen away, we often think in categories of, oh, they just accidentally fell out. We don't know what happened to them. They started off great, and then they fell away. But the, this is not a, fallen away is not a passive verb. It's active. It's in the active voice. It's a very active thing. In fact, it's used throughout um, the ancient world for intentionally throwing yourself out in front of something. This is something you do. It's a willful, conscious choice that you make. The same word is used in Ezekiel 15, 8, where it says, Thus I will make the land desolate, because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord God. The word acted is the same word for fall away. They have acted unfaithfully. They didn't accidentally do this. This was a willful, conscious choice. It's not a passive concept. It's an active action of the will, and it is deliberate. Someone looks in this, according to this passage, it's like someone looks at Christianity. They're attracted to it enough to sort of get pulled into its vortex. And they've been on the inside watching, seeing what happens. They see it happen for years even. And they understand the facts of the gospel. As we heard this morning, which is fascinating. They understand the facts of the gospel. They understand the way Christians are to live. And by all accounts, they look as if they belong to the church. But at some point, in the context of Hebrews, maybe it was persecution, maybe fear of man, maybe it's because they wanted to pursue their own sin, But at some point, that person who's come into the church, so it's not really part of the church, they turn their back on Christ and Christianity and reject Him outright. That's apostasy. Our culture, I mean, just, you you probably are aware of this, but you should know if you're not, that our culture has put a new label on the sin of apostasy, and it calls it now deconstruction. That's the word that is in vogue right now for apostasy. It's deconstruction. It's people, mainly young people, who grew up in the church and they were given every spiritual advantage. And then they deliberately and decisively turned their back on Christ and the church. And they do it under the guise of deconstruction. And it's amazing to me. It's, this is like... Um, a celebrated act now in our culture. If you look at social media, which you probably shouldn't do that, um, but it's everywhere. Deconstruction is celebrated as a noble, heroic act. The reality is that deconstruction is simply apostasy. 
And these folks go around, they call themselves ex-evangelicals and deconstructionists. But friends, Scripture calls this apostasy. When you look at the truth, you see Christ, you know Christ, you've seen the Holy Spirit at work among His people, and you turn from it, that's apostasy. And the sad reality, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us in verse 6, is that people who decisively and deliberately harden their hearts against Jesus and turn their backs on Him, verse 6, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. In other words, if you leave Jesus... In this very specific way, if you leave Jesus, there is no hope for you. See the same thing in Hebrews 10. You want to flip over there with me? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Another sobering passage. If we go on sinning willfully after... See that there. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Verse 28, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, you set aside Moses' law, what would happen to you? Death. Now don't think... Because now we're in the new covenant. You can set aside God's law, the the Messiah's law, and that you're going to get off the hook. Look at verse 29. How much severer the punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted whom? The Spirit of grace. Let me just say a word to young people. These folks on social media who are talking about deconstructing, you need to know that when they say they are ex-evangelicals or deconstructionists, what they mean is that they are apostates and they want you to join them on their journey. And you need to remember, Proverbs 13, 15, the way of the transgressor is hard. You also need to remember that if you leave Jesus... You cut yourself off from the only way to be forgiven. There is no other way. Where are you going to go? Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. You can't turn away from him and hope to be saved. A deconstructed Jesus will save no man. All right? A deconstructed Jesus does not save. You can't mix him with your own ethic. You can't mix him or moralize him. You can't try to dilute him so that he will bow to your sexual deviations. You can't do that. You can't do that to Jesus. Jesus alone determines truth. And he alone determines what is right, what is wrong. He determines gender. He determines reality. So know that behind that mask that looks so attractive is a tomb full of dead man's bones. So I would just encourage you, don't do that. Well, much like the scribes, we have all been presented with an insurmountable amount of of evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. It's been set before all of us. And the reality, the inescapable reality, is that we all must respond to Him. And some of you, I know you are here, and you have been at Calvary your whole life. You've sat here, you've heard, you've talked, you've seen the power of the Holy Spirit at work in this church. And I would plead with you this morning... Don't harden your heart against him. Don't do that. Don't don't harden your heart to the truth you've received week after week. Don't look at the reality 
that has been set before you in the Gospels, in your own Bible reading maybe. Don't look at that and turn your back on Jesus. We all must bow to Him, either now or when He returns. And if you bow now and trust Him now, you will find that His yoke is very light. Let's pray. Father, would you help us, each of us, uh, to give a very thorough investigation of our own hearts uh, to see whether or not we have responded in faith and repentance to you. And Lord, I pray that your word and this warning uh, to the scribes would come heavy on us this morning, even as it has, and that we would all be challenged to respond more faithfully or simply to respond in faith in obedience to Christ. And Lord, we ask for one, that you would not cause any of your dear ones to be in anguish about having committed this sin. That you would comfort them knowing that in your hand they are safe and that if they have bowed the knee to you and if their faith is just barely flickering, that is enough to sustain them for eternity. Well, Lord, I pray that you would bring the hard-hearted clingers on this morning to repentance. And we ask all this for your namesake. Amen.